I'm Amanda. I'm Paige. And I'm Rachel. And you're listening to Milena Mamas. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Milena Mamas. We're super glad to be back here. Unfortunately, um, Paige was not feeling well and will not be able to join us this evening, but Amanda and I are here, so... Hey, everybody. (laughs) Also, I realized I laugh all the time and it's heavy subjects that we're talking about. I'm not laughing at the subjects. I just, it's my way of like easing anxiety or I guess like (laughs) coping. I don't know. Yeah. So it's like when you're like saying something very uncomfortable to a friend or something, and then you're like laughing about it, but you're like, why am I laughing? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was listening to last episode and I was editing it and I was like, why am I laughing? This is not funny. Like, Mm -hmm. but that's just my like nervous energy coming through. Mm -hmm. Okay. So today we're going to do a part two of last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please go back and listen to episode three because we're going to be building on a lot of the same things that we, um, that we discussed. And mm-hmm. again, content warning, um, this episode is going to discuss and sometimes go into detail uh, abortion, sexual assault, rape, and infertility. And some li- listeners might find this content disturbing, so please take care of your mental health. That is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So without further ado today, we are going to give a little bit of a backstory into how we went from the idea that sex is consenting to pregnancy to a woman has the right to her own bodily autonomy and her body, her choice. Um, Because Mm -hmm. that's kind of like a dramatic change. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and I think it deserves some backstory. And, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the problems that we've faced with the purity slash abstinent culture, um, especially since we were raised in that culture. And then finally, what are some ways that we can combat purity culture and what are some constructive ways to teach children and others without shame? Shame. Yeah. And one of the things I want to say is like, I'm really glad that we're creating this space where we can talk about things, these things without shame, because I think it's really important for number one, these conversations to happen. And then also for when we're talking about difficult topics like this, to not feel shameful about them. So that's just also my little disclaimer that, you know, some of these are really uncomfortable things to talk about, but I think the more that we like lean into that and just, you know, say for ourselves, like, this is something I'm no longer going to feel shame about the better and better and more powerful, like our healing will be. So, yeah. And I think, you know, some of the things that we're going to share today, we have not shared with some of our family and, uh, you know, like, at least for me, there's some things I'm going to share that very few people know and about Mm -hmm. me. And I am doing this because, um, I think it deserves a platform and, you know, I, I just feel like women need to be empowered 
to be able to share what has happened with them Mm -hmm. without the fear of like guilt or shame or any of the other negative things that have that are usually brought up with um sharing vulnerability I don't know if even that makes sense (laughs) no it definitely does because I was thinking like even today like maybe I will feel a little bit of shame about like what I'm talking about but me feeling that way does not necessarily make that reality if that makes sense it's like important for me to practice mindfulness and say I'm feeling shame right now but that doesn't mean I'm shameful or that I have anything to be shamed about it's like all about the unlearning of some of the things that you know I'll go into detail later about but that I'm still like it's not like you get over things all in one fell swoop if that makes sense or are able to cope with everything and all in one fell swoop so just I mean I am still dealing with the fallout of certain things and that's okay you know so and I think it's also important to not be ashamed of your beliefs and not be ashamed Mm -hmm. of the journey that took you from point a to point b and um having a having the courage to share that even when you know that it is gonna chafe people who are close Mm -hmm. to you yeah absolutely okay so when I started to examine you know what took me from point a to point b a lot of what I felt as like a teenager when I was the most active in like the pro-life um, circle or, um, culture, I would say is, was a lot of innocence and like lack of understanding about why somebody would have sex. And that sounds a little silly right now, but it's really true. It was like, um, this also goes into my expectations with like my purity culture background, which was like, sex was really dirty. Um, and, I really thought of sex as like a means to an end, like pregnancy was a consequence of sex, like a negative consequence of sex. And pregnancy was really scary to me because the only times I had ever, like, it was like, there was good pregnancy and bad pregnancy. (laughs) Good pregnancy was when it was like within a marriage relationship, bad pregnancy was a consequence of sex outside of the marriage relationship. And in my like faith tradition that I grew up in, when a girl or teenager or young woman will get pregnant outside of wedlock, she would usually have to confess in front of the congregation publicly to having premarital sex and to be pregnant. Wow. And then like I saw, um, like if she didn't do that, that mean that meant that she would have basically been thrown out of church. Like she wouldn't be welcome back. So there was like major social consequences if she didn't undergo that like extremely shameful thing and like traumatizing thing. Um, and even like when I was li- when I was younger, I understood that it was a traumatizing thing. I was like, I never want to do that. You know, that's why I was so scared of it, because I never wanted to have to do that. I understood it as something very shameful. And if she did go and confess to having sex like publicly it, it, during a church service, then like she would be, quote unquote, like forgiven 
but she normally would never have anything that like the married pregnant mothers would have like a baby shower, um, support after the baby came, you know, like meals sent to her in the hospital, stuff like that. That never really materialized for her. It was just, she was able to stay like within the community of the church. Um, so, so she's still saw, like an outlier. <laughs> right. It was like, either you're completely removed or you're kind of like in, but out at the same time. And that stigma would stay with you as long as you were in the church. It was like, oh, that's like, she got pregnant when she wasn't married, you know, no matter how long it had been. Um, and so like all of this led me to think of pregnancy as a consequence of sex. So it definitely was like, if you have pregnant, I mean, if you have sex, like you're risking getting pregnant, you know, that's a risk. <laughs> and so actually what began to like change my mind about how I should view this was viewing and like seeing the instances of when women were treated um, so shamefully for like having sex before they got married and getting pregnant from it. It was like seeing that happen that actually started changing my mind because like I said, I knew it was traumatic even when I was little. And so I started being like, well, why do we treat them like that? Like, you know, why wouldn't it be more likely that they would keep the baby if they were offered support? You know, I started asking those right. questions and it didn't really make sense to me that like someone would be stigmatized for having an abortion or stigmatized for having the baby. That was like a false choice to me, you know? So if I, and I started asking myself, well, what would I do if I was in that situation? So it was really like an exercise in empathy that caused my mind to change because I started thinking, well, if I was faced with that false choice of like, have an abortion or have the baby, but both way you're stigmatized, you're an outlier. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be like, you know, wouldn't it be an option to me to have an abortion? That's, that's kind of how I felt like to not have to go. If, if nobody found out about the abortion, then I wouldn't have to go through the shame of being publicly like humiliated. Nobody would know. And it just like, it made me have a lot of empathy for people that would make that choice. And so once I had that empathy, it kind of like changed everything. And it led me to think about it in a way that wasn't all black or all white. It was really gray to me. Um, and I think that that's like a really good, just having empathy for people and their experiences is a good foundation for like approaching a topic, I think, because then you can say something like, well, if I was in that situation, I don't think that's how I would respond, but I see how you would make that choice, if that makes sense. Like, right. you can see, you can have, um, not compassion, but like I keep on saying empathy for another person and not start to vilify them into like an evil person or someone that like deserves bad things. Um, right. Like then, in like, your, in your mind, you could see how a teenager who had sex with her boyfriend mm -hmm. got knocked up and now has to face the choice of either, you know, standing up in front of the church 
confessing her sin in front of everybody and Mm -hmm. then still having the baby and having that hang over her head for the rest of her life Mm -hmm. or hurry and like, you know, take the morning after pill or like Mm -hmm. go to the Planned Parenthood down the street, like Mm -hmm. obvious, at least like to me, why some people might even like consider. Right. Absolutely. And something that I was, I wanted to mention, but you just reminded me of it is that I have never seen a boy go up with his pregnant girlfriend, even though I know for a fact that several of the girls who got pregnant in my growing up years and had to do this were dating boys from the youth group. Like they were dating boys that went to church there And yet the shame and the stigma and everything was placed squarely on the girl's shoulders. And I just want to make sure that that's noted because it's a very important distinction to make. So whether like that's happened in other churches, I can't really say because it's like not the same across the board in my like faith tradition. Each church is kind of their own like self-governing body, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that's how it was dealt when I was growing up. So she was kind of alone and and I have think to face that by herself. You know, as a society, we do that too. Um, mm-hmm. It's a woman who bears the shame of mm-hmm. an unwanted or an unplanned or an out of wedlock pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't see protests against, I like, I don't see protests standing outside of Planned Parenthood yelling at the men who knocked these women up you know I don't I don't see I mean even even in our laws we don't see laws about um male birth control or laws Mm -hmm. about um vasectomies or whatever you know like Mm -hmm. a man and a woman have to come together to create a baby and you know obviously science allows it so that you can do it in vitro, but either way, like a sperm and an egg have to come together to make a baby. And Mm -hmm. so it's two people who are responsible for that action. And yet we're literally like throwing all of the blame, all the shame, all of the trauma onto Mm -hmm. the woman. Right. And I just, I thought also it was so interesting to me how like when I was growing up like babies were considered gifts from God like they were lit I mean I've heard that so many times like a baby's a gift from God except like it was never referred that way in this case and so it just it was really jarring to me and so like we sometimes talk about it was like a lot of cognitive cognitive dissidents that like made me start asking questions, made me consider it from both sides. And then I did want to say like now, my view of it now is more like I align myself with my social, social worker self, which is that like person, a person, I don't care if you're male, male or female or non-binary, whatever, like you have bodily autonomy and life autonomy to make your own choices, right? And, like, if I meet you in a clinic or somewhere or, like, on the street, whatever, like, my 
my job is not to make the choice for you. It's to empower you to make your own choice. Because like, number one, you have bodily autonomy. And number two, like your satisfaction with your life and your ownership over your life will be so much higher if you're the one making a choice for yourself, if that makes sense. So for me, it's like, I want to empower women and couples and guys, whatever, like to make choices and have their own bodily autonomy for their own lives and give them resources no matter what choice they make. So it's like, if so, say if I was counseling a teenager and she was, had an unplanned pregnancy, what I would do like as a social worker is I would say, here are your options and then lay them all out on the table, all of them. Even if I personally morally had like, if I, if I personally said, oh, I wouldn't choose this or that one, I would still give her the choice, right? So I lay them all, all out on the table, make no moral judgments about them and just let her choose. And then once her choice is made, like give her the resources to follow up that decision. And that's really where I, I stand on the issue now because, like, I respect people's bodily autonomy and their life autonomy, like I said. So that's where I stand. And I know it's, it is a far leap when you're saying from, like, point A or point B. But honestly, I see all of the tiny little things that, like, brought me there. Mm-hmm. I have so many things running through my head right now. <laughs> but... um <laughs> I think I'll address them later. So, um, okay. <laughs> I was just, as I was listening to you, I was just remembering so many things. So, oh. uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. So, um, for me, I also, you know, I grew up Mormon or in the LDS church or as, um, the formal name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, that I, I'm no longer a member, but I, uh, I mean, Amanda, you knew me in high school. I was mm-hmm. very Orthodox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually um, why we were friends. <laughs> and, um, and that faith transition is definitely a topic for a different day, but uh part of what I was taught growing up was, um, these ex- extreme modest standards, um, not extreme as, um, some non-Christian, uh, denominations have, but as far as like American religions, it was pretty extreme. And, uh, I wasn't allowed to show my shoulders. Um, I wasn't allowed to show my midriff. I couldn't show too much back. I couldn't show too much um, cleavage. And actually I don't have cleavage, even if I had a plunging dress down to my belly button, but I still couldn't show too much, uh, too much (laughs) chest. Yes. Thank you. Um, same girl. And, and, uh, my shorts had to come down to my knee and skirts had to come down to my knee dresses down to the knee. Um, if I raised my arms, I had to make sure that my stomach didn't show that, um, my above my knees didn't show if I bent down, um, I had to make sure that it didn't, uh, show down my shirt. And I mean, literally I was taught do the head, shoulders, knees, and toes dance, but when you get dressed. So if any skin is exposed, 
that's not your arms or your lower legs or your neck, um, then you need to put on a different outfit. <laughs> so, um, and, and actually like <laughs> I was told my mom, cause I asked her, I was like, mom, why can't I show my shoulders? Like what's sexy about mm-hmm. like a tank top, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I was like, I can understand a spaghetti strap. I can understand, and, you know, a sleeveless dress, like, but like a tank top, especially like, cause I would see um, older women wear, like, especially business women were on TV, wear like a turtleneck with a, a turtleneck tank top. Mm-hmm. It was very classy, very pretty. And I was like, there's nothing like sexy about that. <laughs> and um, I asked my mom, mm-hmm. like, why can't we show our shoulders? And she told me that it was because the curve of the shoulder is sexually arousing to a man. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and, and like, even in the swimming pool, I had to wear a one piece swimsuit or if, you know, I was able to convince my mom to wear a tankini if I got one that covered my midriff all the way. And at one point I had to have snaps sewed on so that the tankini wouldn't come up (laughs) while I was in the pool. Oh my gosh. Okay. That just reminded me that side note for our listeners, when I was in high school, uh, Rachel and some other people that we knew, what didn't you like sew additions onto your prom dress? <gasps> no, like, it was the musical. Oh, do you remember? That? <laughs> okay, but tell yeah, the but story. but not, but yeah, also for the um, but for prom, yeah, and and homecoming and all the dances, like the girls, the Mormon girls would get together and like get dress alterations to like make their dresses mm-hmm. modest. But no, okay, I forgot about this. My freshman year of high school, I was a part of Singing in the Rain and I was a dancer and we wore some, we had two costumes that one was a a wide tank gold gown, floor length gown Mm -hmm. that we wore. And so it showed my shoulders. And then another Mm -hmm. one was a flapper dress that came, um, I think just above my knee, like it it was like Mm -hmm. mid thigh or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then it was also a tank, but then it had the fringe, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the fringe came longer and the fringe covered my shoulder, but obviously the fringe would move as I danced. Mm -hmm. And I asked the director to alter my costume. (laughs) So I was the only one who altered my costume. <laughs> She's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I remember um, when I was on the swim team, my mom made comments about the racing suits and making sure that they didn't show too much back. So modesty mm-hmm. was very, very prominent. And in fact, we had this slogan that was um, popular amongst the youth in the church and it was modest is hottest. And mm-hmm. So I'm sure you heard that. And like, sometimes that, Oh yeah. Sometimes the guys would um, show up to school with like a t-shirt that said modest is hottest or whatever. And so um, just, it was very, and I, and I also remember hearing that a woman or a girl who dressed immodestly, which is anything other than what I just described 
was walking pornography. And um, I also, like we were taught that uh, what a woman wore was like, if she was asking for it or, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and then also like the guys would regularly tell us that they just felt so gross every time they went to school because all these sleazy girls were wearing like these um, sleazy outfits and they were just so appreciative that they didn't have to avert their eyes when they were talking to Mormon girls. (laughs) That makes me so upset. So, um, and you know some of those people, Amanda. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure I do. It's just interesting to me because it's like, that in itself is such a good representation of, and I, I was going to talk more about this later, but like guys view what girls as responsible for their thoughts and girls view themselves responsible for guys' thoughts. And it's like, everything goes back on like the girl and it's mm-hmm. like no personal responsibility held by these like teenage boys and then going up into like the older men of the church as well. Yeah. And, and we um, were also given this pamphlet as youth and the pamphlet was full of rules that the youth um, had to do or follow. And Mm -hmm. a a lot of them dealt with dress a lot and um, dating and sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were also taught frequently about chastity, about virginity, about virtue. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were taught that extramarital sex was second or was the, the worst sin second only to murder. So, and, and I have actual, actual evidence from my, from the religious book. So, um, the book of Mormon is the most sacred book in, uh, in Mormonism. And I was taught and we were taught that it is the most correct book upon the face of the earth, even more correct than the Bible. And, um, and that a person would come nearer to God by reading it than any other book. And in the book, uh, one of the prophets, cause it was Book of Mormon was written by ancient American pro- prophets. And one of the book, one of the books in it is this prophet talking to his son and his, they went on a mission um, to go preach to the wicked people. And uh, while he was, that while they were there, the son went after a harlot. And so the prophet is chastising his son on that. And what he says, and this is quoted, it's from, it's in Alma 39, three through five. And it says, and this is not all my son, thou didst do which, or thou didst do that, which was grievous unto me for thou didst forsake the ministry and did go over into the land of Siron among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. Yea, she did steal away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou shouldest have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. 
Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. Hmm. So we were taught as doctrine that extramarital sex was the third worst sin that you could do. Um, So denying the Holy Ghost, murdering somebody, and then having sex outside of marriage. Um, and so uh, like I was taught that what a woman wears is a representation of what she does or like what she's soliciting. Um, Mm. I was also taught that, you know, to being modest will help a man control his behaviors. Mm -hmm. And, um, So fast forward a few years, um, I went on a mission in, uh, to Argentina and I was in rural Argentina for, uh, 18 months. And, um, as part of the mission, you have a companionship. So you're with someone else 24 seven and same gender. And we were, Okay, so I was in rural Argentina. We had these um, rules and as part of the rules, we had to wear dresses and skirts. And so I I just want to paint the picture of what I was wearing. So I would wear kind of like a full skirt so that my legs could walk because we walked everywhere. So I, it wasn't constricting. And, and I came... want to say, oh, sorry, just really go, 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 go. I was going to say that like, during this time, Rachel was writing emails with like photos and stuff um, to the United States. I was on that list and <laughs> I remember what you were wearing and I actually probably still have some of the emails you sent. So we could post a picture on your, on our Instagram page if we wanted. Um. <laughs> but yeah, no. So um the one of the skirt, you know, the skirts were full skirts, so I had free leg movement, and they came well past my knees. They probably hit um, three or four inches past my knee, so that when I sat down, it didn't even show my kneecap. And then I would wear a loose shirt because it was hotter than Hades there. And uh, while we were there, I you know, we're walking everywhere and I cannot tell you the number of cat calls that we would get Mm -hmm. all of the time from people, uh, in the street, the men in the street. And Mm -hmm. we, um, there was one point when I actually was followed by some police and, um, the police knew my name and they at one point we're trying to get me to go into the car with them. Um, and I had a companion who had long, beautiful strawberry blonde hair and we had to end up dying it like, wow. Bought die from Walmart. No, not Walmart. Cause there was only one Walmart in all of that area. And it wasn't where we were, but, um, from the store mm-hmm. and we dyed her hair, a dark Brown, just Mm -hmm. to not get as much attention. And, um, you know, we just learned to ignore them. And there was one time when we were coming from a lunch appointment and we were headed back to our apartment and we decided to take this 
shortcut. Now the shortcut went through a field and it was midday. Um, and there was no one around because it's like super, super hot. And in Argentina after lunch, everyone takes a siesta, mm-hmm. but it was still midday in the field, in the field. And it mm-hmm. wasn't, it was probably like a 10 acre field. So it wasn't even like a, a huge, it was like a park, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it wasn't like we were in the middle of nowhere, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And when we were, while we were walking, we saw a man pulled over on the side of the road uh, and he was urinating in the street. And um, so I like looked at my command. I was like, oh, gross. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we, you know, walked uh, around him. You gave him a wide berth and mm-hmm. uh, didn't make eye contact and acknowledge him, just mm-hmm. kept walking. And I was on the outside of mm-hmm. the road. Um, my companion was on the inside towards the field. And um, I heard him get back on his motorcycle. And as he drove by, he grabbed my butt. Mm-hmm. And um, and I couldn't, like, he was gone before I could even, like, do anything. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, what just happened? <laughs> Oh my gosh, Rachel. And, um, and it's like, it's taken a long time. Like even today I Mm -hmm. Google if what I experienced was sexual assault, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's because I didn't get raped. I didn't get, um, I didn't get, uh, you know, my crotch didn't get groped. My boobs didn't get groped and it's just the butt, you know, like we're like, guys swatting you see guys swatting Mm -hmm. girls butts all the time and so um it just like and I was not wearing anything sexy like yeah yeah (laughs) I was not wearing anything sexy at all and so um when I came home from my mission uh that was right at the kind of the height or the starting of the me too movement Mm -hmm. and um I remember I I posted on Facebook because I saw all the me too's. And so I Googled mm-hmm. like what was going on and I saw mm-hmm. that it was a campaign to bring awareness to sexual assault and, um, and to sexual violence. And so mm-hmm. I posted hashtag me too. Um, mm-hmm. and my family didn't know that mm-hmm. that had happened. And, and I actually received some criticism, um, wow. some from some family members and, uh, and so that was hard, um, Mm -hmm. having experienced my experience. And then also like, you know, second guessing myself, oh, did I actually experience sexual assault or like, was that, am I overreacting? And then I heard stories from like other female missionaries who like got groped in the crotch or, Mm -hmm. um, were followed by stalkers or like people chipping holes into the wall of their apartment to peep at them, you know? So, Oh my God. Um, so that was kind of going through my mind. (laughs) Go ahead. I was just going to say like, your experience is not like an isolated experience. It's something that, well, similar 
similar things have happened to other female missionaries. Oh, for yeah, I'm assuming it, like a long time. Yeah. And, and after talking to my husband, um, he also was aware that sister missionaries where he served, he served in a different country than I did, mm-hmm. um, also experienced sexual assault, sexual harassment. Um, it was a did, very were common. you ever, were you ever prepped about that? Like during no. the mission training stuff, they didn't say anything about it. No, maybe even the, Oh, wow. No. And, and in fact, um, there were times when I told my companion that we needed to go home early because they would do rolling blackouts. And, Mm -hmm. um, I did not feel safe in the streets Mm -hmm. when it was dark. And, uh, I, I would actually received quite a bit of resistance from some companions because we Mm -hmm. were going in early and, Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, that I had never, the only training that I received was, um, religious training. I didn't receive any sort of street smarts or, or how to protect myself or wow. anything. Um, so kind of continuing, um, then after my mission, I had someone very close to me share that, um, she had been repeatedly raped by her boyfriend. And um, this was very, I, I, I can't reveal the identity, but um, mm-hmm. this was very surprising because I have known this person for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this person was very close to me. And so having heard that, I knew who the boyfriend was. I knew mm-hmm. her and I knew um, like, like she told me, you know, mm-hmm. she did not feel like she could tell anybody about it because she felt like she was complicit mm-hmm. because it was her boyfriend and she couldn't confess because um the leader of the church was too close to her. Um, like the leader of the mm-hmm. congregation was too, uh, not inappropriately close, but just a close relationship. And, um, and so hearing that was like, suddenly, you know, victim, because when growing up, like victims of rape or incest, that felt so distant to me, but now mm-hmm. having experienced it and having like hearing that, how, prevalent it was that was extremely mm-hmm. eye-opening to me yeah um and so that kind of like changed my whole view on the whole what like a woman is asking for it mm-hmm. type of thing and um and so I got on board really quickly with like abortion is okay in mm-hmm. instances of rape and incest um mm-hmm. And then like the next thing that happened was I, you know, got married and I became a mom. Well, got married, tried to become a mom for a long time and then Mm -hmm. became a mom, Mm -hmm. but having experienced pregnancy, Mm -hmm. that is not anything I would wish upon somebody who is, who is uh, mentally, physically, and emotionally unprepared for. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely, 
it, it's extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It is emotionally difficult. It's life-changing. Mm-hmm. And um, to say to, like, I felt like to say to a 13-year-old girl who was a victim a victim of rape or incest that she had to carry that pregnancy to term mm-hmm. disrupt her schooling the huge social stigmatization that would happen the retra like reliving through that trauma over and over again only to say just give that baby up for adoption mm-hmm. like that to me felt cruel and especially to to not give her the kind of support that she would need Mm -hmm. to to combat that like it'd be one thing Mm -hmm. if we if we as a society supported victims Mm -hmm. and so and like helped them but there's still so much shame and stigmatization. Mm -hmm. And so to have that visible reminder and, and, and more importantly, to force it upon her, to not let her Mm -hmm. make that choice. If she Mm -hmm. wanted to make that choice to continue the pregnancy to term, then that was her decision. But to have that Mm -hmm. decision taken away from her when already the decision to have sex was taken from her, that Mm -hmm. was just like another thing taken from her right and to act like adoption is just all right I just gave my baby away like I just want to say you know especially after having been through pregnancy and the postpartum period like adoption is not an easy thing to do and I feel like that really just makes it seem so little it's like you're not thinking about like how you're breasts like get engorged with milk you're not thinking about the hormone drop you experience like after giving birth you're not thinking about any of those physical things or the like mental things that she would be going through after like birthing a baby and giving it to their her adopt like adoptive parents you know especially if it was in the case of like she ha- she was forced to make that decision by not having any other choice. Right. Like, I don't know, especially because, so I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I really became a proponent of a woman needs to have access to all of the options on the table, especially when she has been forced into this situation. Um, and then after becoming a mom and experiencing post the, the postpartum and mm-hmm. seeing my son grow up and learning more about infanticide, mm-hmm. I was just sickened and like, if this woman does not want this child, I would rather she be given access to that termination early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not, like I said, this is not like, 
it's not popular to talk about this. It's very mm -hmm. uncomfortable to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, and people might disagree with me and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of like, and maybe they're just thinking I'm a cruel, heartless woman, but. But I feel like that conclusion, at least what I'm hearing is it's brought about by like your deep compassion and empathy for like both parties involved. That's what I'm hearing is like, you wouldn't be talking about this stuff and you wouldn't be thinking about it and like deciding what you believe unless you really cared. Right. Does that make sense? Like if it didn't matter to you, you wouldn't even like confront those uncomfortable feelings. And, and like, I love my son and mm -hmm. I I'm so happy that I'm a mom. And I know that there are so many women out there who would love to be a mom, would, would die to be a mom, but can't mm -hmm. and are desperate to have a baby. But I just like, I guess like the other thing that kind of like, the other thing that kind of started changing my perspective was before I tried to have a baby I believed because I was um you know I went to school in science and so I believed that I, I kind of had like this tongue-in-cheek saying that like natural or modern medicine was messing with um natural selection in that um women's hips were getting narrower because um rather than dying in childbirth then they could be uh, saved via C-section. Um, mm -hmm. And and this isn't like cruel, like the, this wasn't a cruel stance on that. It was just more purely like scientific. Like I was saying, mm -hmm. hey, we're actually, women's hips aren't at, are, are narrowing because more women are surviving childbirth um, mm -hmm. and able to procreate and pass on those genes. Whereas without modern medicine, they would have died. And so, um, and then also like, I would have the discussions like those people who are infertile or unable to conceive naturally are passing on maybe some genetic defects because they're able mm -hmm. to conceive via um, in vitro fertilization or art, uh, artificial insemination or all those other wonderful mm -hmm. tools or clomid or whatever. Um, and then, and then it happened to me mm -hmm. and it took, you know, it didn't happen. It didn't take too long. You know, I'm, it took us 14 months to have a baby, mm -hmm. um, to get pregnant. And I know that other people suffer and deal with more traumatic infertility, mm -hmm. So I'm not diminishing that and I'm not saying that I, I understand everything because I, I, I can, I understand that what I experienced was a very sliver of that, mm -hmm. but, um, but it was enough that I realized it's not that cool to like talk about this mm -hmm. when you're the one dealing with it. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of like the same thing with abortion. It's like, until you are the woman 
or until you are in that position or you have to be your face to make that forced to make that decision suddenly like the rules aren't the same anymore you know mm-hmm. like suddenly it looks a little bit different mm-hmm. and so it's just like all of those things kind of coupled together and like like just kind of helped change my mind that mm-hmm. it's extremely more complicated than mm-hmm then we make it. And it's not as simple as sex is consent to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. It's not, I have to add this too. I was also taught that once a man reached a certain point, he couldn't stop. So there's Mm -hmm. also that adding to, um, I forgot to add that, but yeah, like consent has to be given every, every, part of the way. So I, I want to reiterate that I am still working through some of my feelings Mm -hmm. and my beliefs, and I'm still, uh, it's still very nuanced and I don't have words for everything that I'm Mm -hmm. feeling and experiencing, but like, I'm not on the same train that I was Mm -hmm. in high school. (laughs) Yeah. I, I would say the same exact thing about how I feel. Like, I'm definitely still working through all of it. And when you were just talking, it just reminded me that, like, I think in life as humans in general, we really, really, really like black and white answers where things can just be like, wrong, right. You know, I know the answer to this. Check that off my list. Know what I believe and everything. But the truth of it is that things are much more gray than we are comfortable with like our beliefs a lot of times can't be just summed up in like a talking point you know and so unfortunately that makes it hard like when you're trying to have a deep conversation with someone that doesn't agree with you because you can't just be like here's what I believe x y and z you know um but I do think that these kinds of conversations are really important to like figuring out at least for me, I, I like to talk to people about what I think. And like, I also like, really like to listen. So, and that helps me like form my beliefs better. So. Right. Okay. So something I thought you, that was really interesting that you talked about Rachel is just like how similar certain parts of like our upbringing is because Like a lot of people in the Church of Christ would love to say (laughs) that they are like nothing like other quote unquote denominations and like, um, you know, very like separate and apart. But it's like so interesting to me as an adult learning how many things are similar. And one of them definitely is like the modesty standards And I wouldn't say that, like, my modesty standards were as fleshed out as yours. Like, Mm -mm. I didn't, I wasn't taught, like, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, you know. I didn't know specific rules about, like, shorts lengths and stuff. But I knew 
that I was taught that women could specifically cause men to stumble. And that's what like the phrasing was. It was like, don't cause that person to stumble. Um, and the specific like verse in the Bible that talks about that is Romans 14, 13. And it says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And actually that like the context of that scripture is talking about like if you deem one thing is holy and someone else doesn't like don't let your views get in their way but it was taken like way out of context and so as a like a very young girl I'm talking like seven and eight we were at a church in Colorado Springs and that's how I know like how young I was because when I was eight we moved to a different church in like the monument Colorado area um, I remember my mom pointing out a woman in the congregation who she thought was dressing immodestly and telling me she's causing the men around her to stumble. And so wow. like that is a formative, that's like, you know, inside out, it's like those core memories. <laughs> it's like right. one of, that's one of my core memories that like, I remember where in the room I was sitting what the woman looked like, what she was wearing, the whole situation, like, clear as day. And that was my first time, like, ever hearing, like, anything like that. And it just honestly scared me to death because it was the first time I had ever heard that, like, something I did could make someone else sin and possibly go to hell. Right. And so I really took that to heart because... Of course, like, you're never going to objectively want to do that, you know? <laughs> like, that's right. never going to be, like, <laughs> your goal. <laughs> and so I just, like, I started to really make sure, like, my my shirts weren't too low. Um, like, my pants weren't too tight. I had, like, sleeves on all my shirts. Um, the one exception is that I did ballet, but it wasn't a co-ed classroom. So it was just women dance um, girls we were girls but um I would wear like a leotard for that but since it was like a quote-unquote sport it was okay um and then I wanted to talk about like specifically when I so I would go to a camp every summer and like this camp it's just for like youth and you go away for a week and have like Bible studies and like games and like get to know people from the region and stuff. And I, yeah, like I said, I would go every summer and I was thinking about it for this episode and I realized how many like things were a little bit messed up that I never really even thought about. But one thing was that every single morning we would have something called morning calisthenics and we would go out and like do like silly games like to wake us up and stuff but part of it was we all did like stretches and you had to like stretch your arms above your head stretch your arms down to touch your toes like stretch your arms out to the side and you were in a huge circle so you were looking at everyone right like you can mm -hmm. see everyone else and like if any of the counselors saw during that time that like 
your midriff was exposed or like when you bent over your back was exposed or something after morning calisthenics, they would um, like go and talk to those people and tell them to go change. So like one day when I was like 11 or 12, um, they came to me and told me that I had to go change and it was like because I was wearing a borrowed shirt from one of the girls in my cabin and it was a little bit too short so like it didn't fit me really well and so I had to like go change because it would show I mean I'm talking like not even an inch of skin just a little bit and um it's like another one of those memories like I remember exactly where I was when my counselor come, came and talked to me. I remember like how ashamed I felt because like everyone would know that I was wearing a different shirt, you know, right. it's like obvious. And there's only one reason why you would do that like early in the morning, you know? And I was now looking back, it's like, I was a little girl. I was like 11 or 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I had probably not even hit puberty yet. And yet, like, it's kind of, it's just sad to me. Like, my heart hurts now for my myself as a little girl because, like, those modesty standards were basically saying, like, your body is a sexual temptation to the people around you. Right. And in that way, I was being sexualized. When, like, I probably even didn't even know what sex was at that point, to be honest. I just knew, like, something was up, you know? Right. So, I went to that camp every single year from, like, they it was age 8 to 18. So, I went every single year, and when I turned 18, I was a counselor for one year. So, that was a long time mm-hmm. in that, like, setting. And it was, it's so interesting because with these things, like with modesty and like purity culture and like purity standards, it was never necessarily outright, like it was never outright stated like to me, but it was so insidious and like everything I heard, I knew what it meant, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Like. And I know some people that might defend that, like, oh, well, they just wanted to make sure everybody was dressed respectfully or something. But it was like, that's not how it left me feeling. Does that make sense? Um, Because I noticed things, like, I noticed that the girls were the ones that had to go change. I noticed that it didn't matter if boys wore shorts or it didn't matter if they walked around shirtless. Like... You can't, you can't expect kids not to notice that stuff. They're, they will. And I did. So I definitely noticed the double standards. And so with purity culture, for me, that was one aspect of it. I, and that really led to definitely me like distrusting my body Mm -hmm. and viewing my body kind of as like a threat, which is a very dangerous thing for a girl to think when she's going into puberty right and like 
we can talk about this another day, another episode someday, but like Rachel knows, like I had an eating disorder in college and all of this is tied up in that, in the view, like I, in the way I viewed my body, how I thought about myself. And it was so like deep in there in me, you know, that I really had to like go looking for those roots and like the modesty standards I was taught had a big part of the reason why like it manifested when it did in college, but talk about that another time. (laughs) And then like the other thing I want to talk about is for me, if like other people out there may be listening, were raised in the same time as me, like in Christian, uh, like evangelical circles, you might know of the book called I Can Stay High. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that, Rachel? No. Okay, that is so weird. <laughs> Just because like, I Kiss Stating Goodbye was a huge movement in the 90s and like early th- uh, 2000s. And it was basically like saying as a Christian person, you would not date anyone, you would court instead. And basically courting meant that you were getting together with someone of the opposite sex with the view that you were going to get married. And generally that person would be picked by your parents. Um, Because the thought was that like, they were wiser and older than you, and they knew you better than you knew yourself. So they could pick a spouse for you. So this, wow. <laughs> is why, this is why, like, when I met and, like, was friends with Rachel and some of my other LDS friends in high school, I was so shocked that you guys dated a lot when you were, like, past the age of 16 because that was very, like, not acceptable for us. Um, dating was, like, you date to find the person you're going to marry, so it was very like a huge leap into commitment. Um, I have to say the dating that we did looked a little different than like mm-hmm. what pe- most people might call dating. Um, mm-hmm. We weren't allowed to, I wasn't even allowed to go to co-ed parties until I was 16, mm-hmm. but um, essentially a guy would ask you, like call you on the phone and say, Hey, do you want to go out to dinner or go to a movie or whatever? And then you and at least one other couple would go. And we weren't supposed to go with the same person more than once in a row. So it was literally like, I'm going to go like ask you on a date, but I'm not interested in you and like pursuing Mm -hmm. a relationship. And it was like, and then there was also co-ed mingling, but it, or yeah, co-ed mingling, but um, yeah, that the dating was very much like a, you were just hanging out, but I'm paying yeah. for dinner. Does that <laughs> make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, and I definitely like, uh, thank you for clarifying that because I think people that aren't like, uh, you know, familiar with Mormon youth dating would not have gotten that from what I said because but like for me from the outside looking in you know right to me it seemed like people were going on on a lot of dates and like they were called dates you know Mm -hmm. and I knew that there wasn't really any commitment but I had never done anything like that because as I said like 
if you hung out with a person of the other sex, it was like very serious. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was growing up, I would go to things with my dad called purity balls. And they're basically, they were like a really fancy dinner and like dancing and stuff. But the emphasis was like on the daughter's purity. And I don't really know how to explain it in a less creepy way. (laughs) But like, I will say that like they would usually have a speaker talking about like staying pure until marriage and like your father being your protector and like honoring your father um, and like making good choices and stuff like that. But I, I do want to just say like my dad really, to me was always emphasized as like father daughter time. And so it wasn't like for us, he wasn't emphasizing the whole purity aspect. He was emphasizing like getting to spend time with us, which was really, really awesome for us. Like I I have really good memories around those, but it was like the purity stuff was always on the like outside, you know, like we were listening to the speakers, we were, you know, going, we were seeing the pamphlets, we were listening to talks and everything, but it just, it just seemed normal to be honest. Cause we would go like every single year. Um, and when I turned 16, my parents took me out to like a really nice restaurant for my 16th birthday and gave me a purity ring, which was supposed to be worn like on the same ring finger that you put your wedding ring on. And I signed a vow to say pure and pure as in not have sex. Um, until I got married. I just want to say that my parents never had the sex talk with me ever, not even then. So I, I was like, now looking back on it, I'm like, how did they expect me to know what they were talking about? But it was just like, I just did. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was one aspect of it that now as an adult, I look back and I'm like, oh, that's a little odd. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, So yeah, when I was 16, I got my purity ring. I signed a vow to not have sex until I got married. Um, Something that I did that one of my sisters, no, (laughs) something that one of my sisters did that I never did was she wrote a journal to her future husband, like letters to her future husband about her day. She wrote several of these. And the thought was that, like, when she got married on her wedding night, she was going to give these journals to her future husband. So that was kind of a thing that was suggested for us to do to keep our minds on, like, future relationships, not now. That's something Um, that was that was encouraged or suggested as well for me. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And I'm just not a journaler, so I could never keep it up. But my sister did a good, like, quote unquote, a good job and, and wrote a lot of those journals. Um, yeah, like I wrote letters to my future mm-hmm. husband, but I don't have them anymore. I don't know what happened mm-hmm. to them. <laughs> like, huh, interesting. <laughs> They're probably at my parents' house, buried mm-hmm. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And I did want to say, like, I also got some magazines when I was a teen. They're like teen Christian girl magazines. Like, oh, so fun, you know. The Christian um, 17 magazine. 
yes, <laughs> basically. But I, okay, so I'm realizing that I'm a person. And as you can tell, like I have memories that are just kind of like snapshots in my brain because I can remember the exact layout of the ad, exactly the lighting, exactly what it looked like. And it was on one page, it was a white rose that had been crumpled up, like if you smashed it. And then on the other page, it was a white gift box with like wrapping and stuff that had been, it looked like it had been stomped on. And it said, like, would you offer one of these to somebody you loved? And I don't remember exactly the wording of it. Like that was on the top. And then on the bottom, I don't remember exactly the wording it was, but it was that if you had sex before you got married, that's what you're offering to your future husband in your body. So the connotation was really that like, if you have premarital sex, you're ruined. There's nothing that can take a crumpled rose up and return it to its previous state. Like there's nothing you can do that gift to make it like it was before. And so that's what you're left with in yourself, like as a person, that's what you are. Um, And because of that, like fast forward, when I got married to my husband, when we were engaged and like in a serious relationship, like, of course, you know, we were attracted to each other, like wanted to spend time together. Um, We had like boundaries, we had um, discussed with each other and decided on before we got married, like before we got engaged saying like, we're not gonna have sex until we get married. Um, Like even when we're engaged, we're not gonna have sex. And we were like, okay, we'll go this far and no farther basically. And there were like times we crossed that boundary and I just remember feeling like, I can't even describe it. Like, I don't really have words. I was so upset. Like, I remember just like praying, like distraught, praying to God to forgive me that like I had crossed that boundary with my husband and well my now husband my fiance at the time that god would please forgive us and i just like i'm i'm sorry i'm just trying to find the words i just felt like the worst person in the world and that we had like fundamentally failed not only ourselves but god as well and that god was really angry at us and um we didn't even have sex (laughs) like that's the thing we we got married and we were both virgins and like the only people we've ever been with have been each other but like i still went through so much shame during that time because of like that physical relationship that now I understand as like a beautiful thing and like a really, really awesome part of our relationship. But at the time it caused us like so much pain and heartache. And this Um, was a consensual relationship. Yes. To be clear, like 
we wanted, we both were consenting to what we were doing, but we felt like we were sinning. Right. And so, and we felt like that was like separating us from God unless we like just on our knees, like confessed and asked for forgiveness. Um, and so I am one of the lucky ones I've talked to several of my friends who went through the same upbringing and they've told me that after they got married, they had a lot of work to do to deconstruct all of that shame they felt around sex because like it or not, it's not a light switch that you turn off and on. You can't hear that your entire life and then suddenly be in a married committed relationship with someone and view sex as a wonderful thing. Like, and For me, I say I'm one of the lucky ones because I've never felt shame about having sex with my husband, but I know multiple people who have confided to me that have said that they do and they have, and like their honeymoons weren't wonderful times. Like they were traumatic times because they felt all that shame and guilt for having like a a consensual thing. That is something that I feel like is not talked about a lot, that there are a lot, a lot of women and guys, I can't speak to the male experience because I never was there, but I'm not saying that they couldn't feel this way either, but I'm just saying like, there are a lot of women out there who were told their entire lives that sex was a dirty, like forbidden thing and then got married and were suddenly expected to like turn on that switch turn on that switch. Like your husband wants it. You should want it to all this stuff. So that is one big detriment. I feel that lies in purity culture. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, I like, it sounds like you're telling my experience (laughs) because it's so, it's so similar. And I just want to tell our listeners as close as Amanda and I were back then, we didn't have these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things I'm learning about you that we didn't talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there is so much under, like, you wonder, can I talk about this with people? Like, am I the only one? You There's know? so much shame. Yeah. Um, like... Like so much shame to the point that I think it was, I think like as recently as a couple years ago that I could honestly stand naked in front of a room or in front of a mirror in my bathroom and not feel shame at looking at my naked body. And that's just you by yourself. Me by myself. After being married, after having a child, like I, I felt shame. Like I, I hated going to the doctor to get a physical mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it felt like an invasion of my, uh, like of my privacy. Like I, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like, and my mom didn't help in that respect. Mm-hmm. Like she she would tell me that she also felt uncomfortable. She wouldn't say mm-hmm. like, she wouldn't say things like, 
no, this is actually really important to go see. And here is when a doctor is being appropriate. And here's when a doctor is being inappropriate. Like there was Mm -hmm. none of that, none of that healthy boundaries of when is it okay for a medical professional to touch you versus when it's not Mm -hmm. okay for a medical professional to touch you. And like, um, after it was actually when I was pregnant that I realized, um, like, okay, it's okay for this doctor to Mm -hmm. examine my vagina and, Mm -hmm. you know, to their credit, like my OBGYN, there would always be a nurse that Mm -hmm. in the room as well, whenever they were going to do a physical examination. And so Mm -hmm. like they had boundaries up to make sure that everything was appropriate and medical. And, but like, it took me being an adult realizing that Mm -hmm. and, um, and like there, there's so much, so much bodily shame and, Mm -hmm. and that whole idea of like virtue as like a rose as like, Mm -hmm. um, virginity as a rose. Mm -hmm. That's also something that was taught in the Mormon church as well. And Mm -hmm. like, they had these things, they don't do them now, but they had these things, um, that in like the nineties and Mm -hmm. early two thousands called Mormon ads. And I just want to show you this one, Amanda, because it reminded me it's, um, okay. It says, savior kisses and then and so it's a couple yeah and um they have like a garlic clove pressed between their foreheads to make sure that they're not touching and it says savior kisses and then at the bottom it says it's a quote by one of the former presidents of the mm-hmm. church that says what do kisses mean when given out like pretzels and robbed of sacredness mm. and I remember object lessons where Mm -hmm. the leader would like throw chocolate kisses to just whomever. And that was like Mm -hmm. the idea of it doesn't mean anything if you give yourself away. Mm -hmm. And, um, and like we'd have object lessons about like the chewed up piece of gum and, uh, and it was all like (laughs) growing up in the youth, like in the youth um, curriculum, at least when I was growing up, I know a lot has changed now, but when I was growing up, so this would be the 2000s and early 2010s, um, mostly the 2000s is when I was growing up, but uh, the women would receive instruction on how to keep like how to be chaste, how to keep their virginity, wait for marriage. Um, don't, don't think dirty thoughts. Um, marriage is this beautiful thing. Sex is this beautiful thing. Um, and then the, the young men were taught don't masturbate, don't look at porn and like, and, and then, and I remember like, I didn't realize that the hormonal changes that were occurring during puberty and during my teen years Mm -hmm. and the natural curiosity and the Mm -hmm. natural sex drive that teenagers have, I did not Mm -hmm. know that that was natural. I did Mm -hmm. not know that that was normal. I Mm -hmm. felt 
dirty. I felt like I was sinning. I felt like Mm -hmm. I was the only one. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Why can I not like, and, and, and I realize now, like after constantly suppressing and suppressing and suppressing mm-hmm. and suppressing it, like made me think about it more and more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Cause it's, you know, the pink elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, like, okay, those now that we, now we know those normal hormones, like sexual exploration, stuff like that, that is like documented. It happens during, you know, puberty. That was construed as lust yes. by the church for me. It was like, that is your lust, your sinful, lustful nature coming out. And so, of course, you know, that was my reaction to that was like, exactly like you, what is wrong with me? Surely right. I'm the only young woman feeling this way because it was similar like I thought that was something guys felt um oh I knew that guys would like like, had dirty minds quote-unquote you know like (laughs) (laughs) I was like I'm supposed like am I only one but yeah so anyway (laughs) no and and it's like and then this um so yeah I just remember feeling that and growing up, you know, we had to have, we had closed door interviews with the bishop, um, who's a man. And usually like he was, so he was a member of the congregation. So during a lot of the time, it was actually the father of one of my friends. Um, Oh my. And so, (laughs) And so we'd have these interviews, these closed door interviews. And, and I was expected to disclose to him any sort of sexual transgressions or sexual acts that I had done or committed. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to also uh, like confess to him or like um, talk to him about any sort of temptation that I was feeling Mm. Anyway, and, and like, I know that, so my experience, luckily, was mostly positive in those situations. The men that I um, would, would uh, talk to were good men, but I know that There are instances in the Mormon church when that relationship has been exploited and has been Mm -hmm. uh, abused. And I know sexual abuse has happened. And I know that Mm -hmm. like those, there are some men who probed too much Mm -hmm. and talked too much. And this is a middle-aged man talking to youth as young as like 10 and 11 about Mm -hmm. sex and like bestiality and masturbation and it's like do these kids even know those things right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and then it was also you know so I went to BYU and BYU has this honor code And the honor code, we sign it that says um, you won't have premarital sex. You won't 
um, be gay or lesbian, you won't drink, you won't smoke, you won't even drink mm-hmm. coffee or tea. Um, and you'll be honest, you'll dress according to the church standards and, um, and you'll go to church. And if you don't do any of those things, you're subject to discipline and possibly even expulsion. And also you're further told to report anybody that you know who isn't um, living up to that. And so that was a problem. And um, it actually, this came to a head several years or a few years ago because they found out that um, the Title IX office was talking to the honor code office. And so women who would, conf- or who would um, report a rape or an abuse were sometimes subject, uh, subjected to school discipline because they were drinking or they were um, uh, out late or whatever. Um, and so like some women were expelled as a consequence of the details of the rape being like brought forward. And then it was further discovered that there was a police officer Um, as part of the BYU police department who would scrape the police database and give information to the honor code office about students, not even about information that had been happened on BYU campus. Um, And also I know that students who attend Utah Valley University, which is a university really close to where BYU is, um, they would, if they were, if Utah, so in order to go to BYU, you also have to live in BYU approved housing, which means that Mm -hmm. um, like the BYU housing department has to okay where you live. And all the social activities happen in BYU approved housing. And so the kids that went to UVU wanted to live in BYU approved housing a lot of times. And so even students who were at, who were attending UVU were forced to comply with the BYU standards. Mm. Um, And uh, we were also taught that like how obedient you were on your mission would depend on how hot your spouse was. And this is mostly, so the majority of missionaries are men, male, especially before 2012, because in 2012, the age changed. And um, instead of being 19 for girls and 18 for boys, it used to be 19 for boys and 21 for girls. And a lot of girls didn't go because they got married by that time. They were married by that time, but um, uh, but they changed it. So now, so it used to be a ton of boys, mostly, mostly boys. And mm-hmm. they were taught that like, if you like, depending on how obedient you were, is depending on how hot your spouse was. And 
we were also taught, like, um, I mentioned the scripture earlier about how mm-hmm. sex was second only to murder uh, and third to murder and then denying the Holy Ghost. Um, but there was another, uh, there was another uh, scripture that um, was taught. And this is something that I didn't, I didn't catch as a teenager, um, but I took great issue with it when I was an adult and still attending. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in the, it's in the, near the end of the Book of Mormon and it's in Mormon nine, chapter nine, verses nine through 10. And it says, um, and it's like discussing a war that had happened. Mm-hmm. And it says, and notwithstanding this great abomination of the Lamanites, it doth not exceed that of our people in Moriantum. For behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners. And after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue. And after they had done this thing, they did murder them in a most cruel manner, torturing their bodies even unto death. And after they have done this, they devour their flesh like unto wild beasts because of the hardness of their hearts. And they do it for a token of bravery. So in the scripture, the people kidnap these girls and women, rape them, and then kill them and eat their flesh. And, um, but the thing that I took great issue with was that it said that they deprived them of their chastity and virtue. And I took great issue with that because, um, that is saying that when you are raped, your virtue Mm -hmm. and your chastity are taken from you. Um, Mm -hmm. And so therefore you are discarded. And this is something that is like extremely prevalent and um, as kind of like an evidence of what I'm saying, uh, Elizabeth Smart. So do you know Mm -hmm. who she is? So, yeah. Yeah. So this was a big deal, not only nationally, but in the Mormon community because she was Mormon and um, Mm -hmm. it happened in Salt Lake for our listeners, just to recap at 14 years old, she was kidnapped out of her bedroom and was taken into the mountains close to her home uh, for nine months and was repeatedly raped by um, this man and drugged and uh, forced to drink alcohol and sometimes raped multiple times a day. And um, she actually had multiple opportunities to escape, but um, she never did. And so a lot of people mm-hmm. were like, well, why didn't you escape? Mm-hmm. And um, in 2013, I believe she said, she said this, she says, I think it goes even beyond fear for so many children, especially in sex trafficking, it's feelings of self-worth. It's feeling like who would ever want me now? I'm worthless. That mm-hmm. was what it was for me. The very first time I was raped, I was raised in a very religious household one that taught that sex was something special that only happened between a husband and a wife who loved each other. And that's how I'd been raised. That's what I'd always been determined to follow that when I got married, then, and only then would I engage in sex. After that first rape, I felt crushed. Who would want me now? I felt so dirty and so filthy. I understand so easily all too well why someone wouldn't run because of that alone. Mm. 
Wow. And I think it's just like, you, you cannot teach that and then expect Mm -hmm. everything to be okay. Mm -hmm. You can't expect that a woman will have a healthy sex life with her husband. Mm -hmm. You can't expect that children will recognize sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. You, you can't expect that, um, people won't take advantage Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was just thinking specifically about, it almost seems like, okay. So I've seen a, a little bit of pushback against teaching kids about like um correct anatomical terms for their body and like having a safety team of like people they know they can trust to go tell if anything happens to them like these are things that are taught to parents that say you know these are like research-based interventions a parent can do to help lessen the chance of sexual abuse on for their children but there's, there has been a pushback against that saying that's too mature for my child. That's too much information for them to know, like, it's going to scare them. It's going to scar them. And I think, I think people say that because as parents, we, of course, like parents for the most part, of course, are never going to wish their child to go through something like that. And it's almost too awful to even think about. So it's like, okay, by me thinking about this and like acknowledging that this might be something that could happen, like what if that, you know, increases the chances of it happening? But I think something that like we as parents need to know is like we empower our children by talking about this stuff in an age appropriate way. about by talking about consent and who's a safe person and you know who like you said what can they expect in a doctor's visit what is safe and what's not safe behavior um and we we communicate to them that we are open to these conversations right that if they ever have to tell us something we're not going to freak out about it, you know, Mm -hmm. just like it's all setting that foundation of like, if something does happen, that your child is more likely to number one, recognize what's happening and then come to talk to you about it. Right. And I think a huge part of that is, you know, like you said, like, like you said, using the correct anatomical words, like sexual literacy Mm -hmm. is like, because I personally want to know if my son comes to me and says, mom, so-and-so touched my private area. I want to know what. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I want to know what happened and I want to know where. Because 
not that I need to know the gory details. It's not mm-hmm. that, but it's like, I, I need to understand is this, was this an accidental, like in play, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like, or, or was this, you know, was something this, that was inappropriate. Right. Right. And it's like, I think like there are degrees of mm-hmm. severity and it's like our children need to understand that as well that and and it's like so to lighten the mood just a tiny bit but also mm-hmm. to to be serious um i one of my guilty pleasures is watching real housewives and mm-hmm. <laughs> um in the real housewives of potomac one of the episodes um one of the main characters discusses her daughter's leaving to go to college and she takes her daughter to a martial arts class and like a self-defense and at the end of the self-defense class this mom um she gives her daughter my I think it's a gun maybe it's a taser some self-defense and um what she essentially says, she's like, I pray you never, ever, ever have to use this. Mm -hmm. But if you ever find yourself in this situation, I want you to have the knowledge and the tools necessary Mm -hmm. and needed to get out of the situation. And if you can't Mm -hmm. get out, then fight like hell, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, and then later on you discover that, uh, this character, was a rape victim and a rape survivor. Mm -hmm. And so like that mother was not naive enough to think Mm -hmm. that her daughter might ever, you know, like she Mm -hmm. wasn't, she wasn't naive to think that it would never happen to her daughter, even Mm -hmm. though they grew up in an affluent area, they lived, she was going to uh, a school, you know, a good school. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even matter what school you go to, because as we saw, Mm -hmm. Um, the Stanford mm-hmm. rapist, Brock Turner, who was at a frat, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I think it's important to not, and I've said this before, to not be so naive about some of the ills of the world mm-hmm. and, and to mm-hmm. teach our children, yeah. not, not to fear them. They shouldn't fear them, but to also not be naive to those, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, the way I think of it is like I I just keep on coming back to the word empower because it's like it's giving enough information to empower my my child, not enough to make but that they like like you said, they can stand up for the, themselves and recognize situations that might not be safe. Also like communicate with me too. But like something I wanted to touch on here is that one of the ways like going back to purity culture and stuff like one of the ways I'm doing this with my son he just turned three so we started doing this when he was two and a half um is we talk about I made up this little like chant thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I was like you're the boss of your body and he's like yeah I'm the boss of my body and then I'll tell Maddie and he'll go mommy 
and I'll ask him, who's the boss of daddy's body? And he'll say, daddy. And so we talk a lot about like, you're the boss of your body. You decide what goes. And so I'll, you know, practice consent with girls. Like, if you want to hug somebody, what do you say? And he'll be like, can I hug you? And we'll practice and give him a hug. And so I'm really trying to do this early. So it's just like really natural for him. Like it's natural for him that he gets to decide what happens to his body. And it's natural to, for him that other people get their body too. Um, the way I've been doing it with him is like being really just body neutral, <laughs> like talking about, like we already said, talking about his body in like, just like scientific terms, you know, like I taught him what an elbow is. I also told him what his penis was like, Mm -hmm. let's be honest, you know? And so like when we're in the bath, like, and I'm washing him and stuff, like, I'll, you know, ask him to help me and like use the correct anatomical terms and just be, I'm like super not like neutral about it. Like so not neutral. (laughs) Um, And then I've also like recently at his last doctor's appointment, as three-year-old doctor's appointment, his doctor, who she's amazing, she was like checking his penis and was, and told him like, well, she was checking him. She told him what she was going to do. And then she checked him. And then she was like, she talked to him about how like looking at that part of his body was only for when he was in the bath with mommy and daddy and like at the doctor's office. And so we've like, you know, started incorporating that into our conversations as well. And so like, what I want to say about this is it's, I think it really is making sure you do it in like an age appropriate way, in ways that they understand and are like neutral or positive, if that makes sense. Right. I, I was once asked, um, how I would approach modesty with, if I had a teenage daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of like stumped me for a minute. Cause I, cause it like, you know, I was like, well, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, how would I? <laughs> yeah. How would I? Because <laughs> what I was taught growing up is not how I want to teach. And um, I came across this post from a mom blogger in uh, Portland and her name is Jessica Martin Weber. I don't want to take credit for this because this is her doing, but she says that she doesn't teach modesty to her children. Um, Instead, she has like six questions that she asks them Mm -hmm. and they are one, can you participate in the activities you will need to do without worrying about your clothing? Two, is it practical for the weather? Three, will the clothing you wear seem out of place in that setting or will it communicate respect for where you are and who you are with based on the social norms of that setting? Think of an orchestra performance versus a rock concert, a funeral, a wedding, or catching a movie versus attending a theater performance. um, Number four, are you comfortable with the parts of your body that are showing and that others may notice those parts? And though we are not responsible for the actions of others, how will you feel if someone says something about that? Five, 
Can you tell me what inspired you to pick that outfit and what you feel it expresses about yourself and communicates to others? And then six, are your genitals adequately protected and safe from accidental, accidental harm or accidental exposure? Mm. And I really liked these because it, again, puts, it puts the decision and the choice back on the girls, like, and, and the, and the boys, like they are responsible for their own behavior. I'm not responsible for anybody Mm -hmm. else's behavior. Um, but it also helps teach societal norms and Mm -hmm. what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's not appropriate to wear cut off booty shorts to a wedding, (laughs) you know, but, Mm -hmm. or to a funeral. But like mm-hmm. to the beach, sure, you know, like, yeah, you know, and, and I really liked like, are you comfortable with what you're showing? Mm-hmm. And like, is it practical for the weather? Is it practical for your activity? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and, and there's no shame associated with that. It's not saying you need to cover up because you're a walking porn ad, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not saying if someone sees you in this, what are they going to do? Like, mm-hmm. I, I appreciated that it's like, it has that nuance of, are you prepared if like somebody says something about you're wearing what you're wearing or something? Because if what they say is, yeah, I'm prepared for that. Like, I feel completely comfortable in what I'm wearing. Then I'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, as long as you're prepared, you know? Yeah, like if you wear a sheer dress with um, stickers on your boobs and like panties, like you better be prepared for what people are going to say. <laughs> That's a very good example. <laughs> Although that still does not excuse, that still does not, um, that still does not justify a rape. Like it doesn't oh, matter yeah, what absolutely. she's wearing. I think, I think what, like, the biggest thing to combat is to just, like you said, Amanda, empowerment, literacy, and age-appropriate awareness mm-hmm. without being naive, you know? Mm-hmm. And I know that, like, a common argument is, like, well, I want to preserve their innocence. Mm-hmm. And... I guess my one of a rebuttal I would say is if like you might be trying to preserve their innocence, but their innocence might be what is like like their innocence might be taken from them. Right. And their innocence and, like, naivety could be used against them. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. I think it is. It's so hard. I mean, just one of those issues that many, many issues as a parent that you're, like, you have to think about and you have to decide, like, what you're comfortable with as a parent and what's best for you and your family you know, Mm -hmm. and what, like, what you believe in, what you can live with, so, 
Yeah. And, and I think this is why this is another reason why having sex ed in the schools is good because Mm -hmm. it does allow at least some level, like a a layer of separation to Mm -hmm. be more scientific, to be more abstract and to not be so like close to home. So Mm -hmm. it's like another defense mechanism, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like children definitely should hear it first from their parents, but Mm -hmm. if, and and like, if they hear it from their parents, then it should be reinforced by Mm -hmm. the, the scientific community and the studies. Mm -hmm. Um, If for whatever reason that parent either will not or cannot or does not then there's still you know Mm -hmm. another person who can help give vital information and Mm -hmm. life-changing information and potentially life-saving information and you know like prevent horrible things like Mm -hmm you know, like our first one, like our first episode, preventing even an unwanted pregnancy that could end up in an abortion, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it is so important for high schoolers. This is kind of my like hill I'll die on. (laughs) It's just so important for high schoolers to understand consent. Oh, if you think about like some of the situations, like they will be in in high school and then will be in in college. Um, and you mentioned like the Stanford incident, like the Brock Turner and the rapist Janelle Miller. Brock Turner. Yes, rapist Brock Turner. Put his photo in the dictionary. Um, but like I think about him and like his choices. And what he did and how, like, we can say as a society, this is not working. Like, he should know better. I think also, like, by the time high school comes around, I think it's time to take the gloves off and to not. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, there's some debate about, like, you know, the sex talk in elementary school. But, like, I'm sorry. By the time high school comes around kids are going through puberty. There's so much going on. There's Mm -hmm. a huge like age, age range, you know, 14 to 18. And it it is so important, especially in some jurisdictions where like here in Utah, an 18 year old can be accused of statutory rape for having sex with a 16 year old, you know, or a 17 year old. Mm -hmm. And it's, extremely important um and consent 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 Mm -hmm. consent and it starts Mm -hmm. like you said in the toddler years can I give you a hug Mm -hmm. can I give you a kiss Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely (sighs) we could talk about this for hours (laughs) yes (laughs) thanks everybody to hang in on if you made it this um I'm glad we could share our stories Rachel and it's just 
it's crazy to hear like the similarities, like I already said, but it's good for me to hear like somebody else went through it too, you know? And I think that's, you know, there's power in sharing. Mm -hmm. There's power in community and there's power in knowledge and Mm -hmm. we owe it to I think we owe it to our children and to society to like stand up and confront these hard issues, even if it does make you uncomfortable, even if it, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, obviously within reason, like your mental health is extremely important and Mm -hmm. you need to take care of that. But Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's great power that comes from, from talking about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I, I want to acknowledge that I think my parents did try to do the best they knew, but that doesn't mean to me that I have to just like ex- accept everything that happened and like, think it's okay or like pass it along to my child. So I did want to say that, like, I, I just think it's, it's okay for us to be like, this happened. I'm not okay with that. And I'm not going to pass it on. So Mm -hmm. that's the only other thing I would say. Yep. Like, yeah. All right. Well, if you listened all the way to the end, Go drink a glass of wine, take a hot bath, go go on a walk, go drink a soda, whatever you do to unwind. <laughs> Watch Real Housewives. <laughs> yeah. Rachel. <laughs> well, I'm going to go to sleep. <laughs> it's late. Yeah. I'm sorry. It is late. It's fine. But no, anyway. Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Milena Mamas. We hope you join us next time.